Hello and welcome to Fearless, the Human Rights Defenders podcast. I'm Claire McGillivray. The Fearless podcast series is exploring what life is like for human rights defenders in Scotland, who they are, the challenges they face, and what we need in order to protect them and allow human rights defenders to flourish. Over the past few months, I've been on a journey. I've been speaking to people across Scotland from different sectors, different walks of life, people who I would describe as grassroots human rights defenders, but as I've experienced, they might not always refer to themselves as that. I've been doing this as part of the Atlantic Fellows for Social and Economic Equity programme. I've been carrying out research into what human rights defenders need to flourish in Scotland. And I want to share with you and explore some of the themes that have come up again and again in these discussions. To do that, in this first episode, I'm joined by Carolyn Scott, a journalist who has worked in human rights for many years. Welcome, Carolyn. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Claire. It is great to be here. And today, I'm actually going to turn this podcast on its head a little. This is your podcast, but I'm going to be interviewing you today just to find out more about your research and what you've heard. But before we do, let's just chat about this podcast series, as this is just the first of three episodes that you have coming up. Yeah, that's right. All of these episodes explore what human rights defenders in Scotland need to flourish. The first episode is going to explore the the issues that many human rights defenders face at the grassroots level in Scotland. We'll hear from some of the people I've interviewed over the past few months and look at what they identify as the main issues that need to be addressed and how those could actually be changed, both locally, nationally and internationally. And I've heard some snippets from those interviews. We've chatted quite a lot about the the main themes that have come up. And there's some really shocking stuff, but sadly some stuff that should be shocking that just isn't all that surprising. Yeah, in the second episode, I'm talking to Naomi McAuliffe, the Scotland Director of Amnesty International, to look at these issues on a national and international level. That episode focuses on the international frameworks that could be used to protect human rights defenders, how we monitor human rights incidents or incidents against human rights defenders, and what can be done here in Scotland by bodies like the Scottish Human Rights Commission, our national human rights institution. And right now is quite a vital time to be looking at how we protect and defend rights in Scotland, isn't it? Because there's so much happening right now in that sphere. Scotland is looking towards incorporating more rights, bringing human rights into Scottish law and improving protections for rights. But at the same time, you have the UK government trying to replace the Human Rights Act, which would mark a massive step backwards for the protection of rights. So the time is definitely right to be exploring these issues, isn't it? Absolutely, because at this moment we're at a juncture in Scotland where we're heading forward on a positive journey of human rights. And if we don't get it right now, the people who are speaking up for human rights are actually able to be protected. We're going to miss that opportunity. Um, And it's vitally important if we want to tackle inequalities in Scotland, that the people who need the change most are right at the heart of change that needs to happen. So We need to really seize this um, opportunity with with both hands, grasp the nettle, if you like, and and, and charge forward with new systems and, and approaches that can really help to support a human rights culture to thrive. And that's going to come to life in the third episode of this series, isn't it? Yes. In the third episode, I'll be talking to Andrew Anderson, who is the director of Frontline Defenders. That's an international human rights organisation with the specific aim of protecting human rights defenders at risk. And I'll be exploring best practice where this is globally and locally and how can we support human rights defenders in really practical ways. So it's a fairly packed three episodes, so let's just jump straight into it. And the first thing that I want to ask you about is, well, the entire name of this project. I mean, what is a human rights defender? Well, according to the UN, a human rights defender is a term used to describe people who individually or with others act to promote or protect human rights in a peaceful manner. And that could be in a voluntary role or in paid employment. But I actually love the quote by Amnesty International. Um, They recently had a um, a document called 
um, human rights on the front line. And they talk about human rights defenders being agents of change um, and their ability to operate safely and freely is really vital element of our open society and supporting human rights defenders is one of the most effective ways to create just and equal and open societies with access to justice for all. I love that quotation. But I often find as well that people who I might call human rights defenders wouldn't often describe themselves as that. That, I think, was uh, something that really struck me when you first approached me and talked to me about this project. I was like, human rights defenders, that term, it's not something I initially would relate to exactly, but I've been active in a lot of activism work and a lot of campaigning work, but I just wouldn't call myself a human rights defender. And I think one of the people you spoke to about this really kind of hit the nail on the head as to why I wouldn't call myself that. And I want to play that short clip for you just now. So I guess in my head, a human rights defender feels like somebody who is, who's actively and purposely doing something to the point where they're almost endangering their lives. That's, that's to me how I picture a human rights defender. I think of somebody who's out there, um, you know, on the ground, like physically facing up to you know, the, the violators of human rights. Whereas I, I guess what I do is um, done in a much quieter manner that it doesn't feel like, it doesn't feel like a battle, you know? So when you, I, I guess just even the word human rights defenders, um, you know, it's about people on the streets marching for their rights with placards, the whole shebang. <laughs> and that's not me. I really, um I really related to that clip because to me, I think I'd never consider myself something as grand as a human rights defender. It feels like too big a term for the, the small pieces of work that I've been active in. Yeah, I mean, I'd agree with you there. And certainly different people had different thoughts around whether we should use the term even at all as human rights defenders. And there's a lot of humility, actually, in the people that I spoke to doing inspiring work across Scotland. Um, but they wouldn't see themselves as being big actors um, in this field. But actually, they are. The work that they're doing is incredible. Um, so I explored that a little bit in the second podcast with Naomi from Amnesty about whether we should even be using the term at all if it helps in an international way because there are structures of support around human rights defenders maybe we should use it but as you'll hear maybe in a couple of other clips from folk that I'd spoken to actually I'm not sure people at the grassroots use that terminology so how useful is it if we're not using it? Yeah, and it's it, like you say, it's useful in terms of international structures and in the kind of more academic and formal realms where we discuss human rights defenders. But I quite liked this clip um, where somebody kind of defined themselves and finding their own ways of describing who they are and what they do. I think what you call yourself doesn't matter too much because it, it depends on what you what you do, right? People people see what you do, they don't necessarily care what you call yourself. Um but I don't think there's really a word that totally encapsulates what I do. The one word that I have started to use much more often um, is community champion, um, because I champion my community in all its forms, in all its beautiful diversity, in all of its different policy stratifications and everything that relates to my community and how my community sees itself, experiences itself and navigates itself in this world, I champion. And so... I started to use that term much more often because to me, it doesn't feel so highbrow. That person there kind of referred to it as highbrow. And I think maybe I feel a little bit of that myself, but isn't it quite important that we allow those who are doing the grassroots work to self-identify, to, to call themselves what they want to call themselves? Absolutely. I don't think there's any point in forcing a term on people if, if they don't identify with it. Um, I heard a lot of people defining themselves as activists or campaigners or just someone doing something that they believe in um, and acting with others to organise around those issues. Um, but that is the definition of a human rights defender, is acting with other people to advance human rights. So I'm kind of in the middle between those two um, 
you know, different ideas about whether we actually adopt that language because it might help internationally. It might help to shift some of the structures and the inequalities which are embedded. But on the other hand, if people are not using it, then I don't really think we should force it. On the flip side of that, there's perhaps an element of if we actually empowered activists and campaigners to see the importance of their work and to call it something a bit more grandiose, then it could give them the confidence to move forward. And there was one lovely clip um, with somebody who you interviewed who, at the end, uh, had kind of changed their tone on whether or not they thought they were a human rights defender. And I think I can play that for you now. It's an important term. I don't use it that often, um, like at work or uh, to describe myself or other people who are doing this work. But I think after this conversation and you know, just thinking aloud, I think it's absolutely necessary. Um, I feel like we really need to present ourselves in whatever way as 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 warriors like it's a real we have to defend so that we don't lose because if we lose then how are we going to gain and that is that kind of great example of taking ownership of a term and allowing it to empower you and i love that this person then describes themselves as as a warrior you know that to them is what their work is as a human rights defender Absolutely. And, you know, it reminds me of the work that um, the children's human rights defenders did when they took their warrior shields of human rights to Geneva to speak to the UN. And they very much adopted that um, terminology of being children's human rights defenders. And the children's human rights defenders that I interviewed as part of this project were unequivocal in saying that they they were activists and children's human rights defenders and they were part of that movement for change. So um, I guess we still have a bit more of thinking and talking to do around whether we use that term or not in Scotland. But for the sake of this podcast series, we're going to crack on and, and use that term. And, you know, it, we're using it to discuss a huge variety of people doing a wealth of incredible work. And I want to talk more now about the actual interviews that, that you carried out and the themes that came out of those. And one of the real kind of really big things that came from those interviews or from the snippets that I've seen that you've shared with me was just the impact that working as a human rights defender has. So you heard a lot in your interviews about the impact that the worker activities carried out as a human rights defender um, had on daily lives, on family life, on mental and physical well-being. And let's first of all look, start by uh, looking at what one person said about the sacrifice involved. I mean, let's not be about the bush. It involves a lot of sacrifice being an activist. Um, you very rarely get paid for your time, so you're often having to balance this alongside your paid work to obviously live. Just tell me a little bit about uh, how much of that came across in all of your interviews, that people were going above and beyond their own work, above and beyond their own responsibilities to carry out this work. Yeah, I mean, it really struck me... Um the humility that people had in terms of the the work that were they were doing but also some of the really extreme difficulties that they had um in their personal lives a lot of people talked about burnout they talked about getting to a point where actually they couldn't continue and they had to withdraw and i know one of the activists that i spoke to um was was very clear about they came to a point where they had to withdraw but the toll it's taken, I think, um, I, I, I felt like at one point last year, I, I just withdrew from everything. That was one for me that, um, you know, you're a human rights defender, Claire. I, I've been an activist. I've worked in activism. I should probably come to terms with the idea that I may well be a human rights defender. Um, but I know for, from, from my own point of view that whenever I do get to that feeling of burnout I do withdraw and I just remove myself and that comes with a feeling of guilt that you're then letting someone down that that really shouldn't be there given what you're doing. Certainly that was a common theme because people often felt alone um, in their leadership around human rights um, 
And if they're not able to switch off from the activism, from the campaigning, from the being there for other people, from the opening their hearts and, and, and loving the other people who were around them, they felt guilty about resting. And if you're guilty about resting, it means that you can't be your full self um, in terms of supporting other people or um, in terms of the cause. Some folk talked about the cause being the most important thing when actually if they don't take care of your mental health, your own mental health, and you're ground down and you're facing threats or you're losing your job or you're dealing with racism, that takes a tremendous toll on your mental health. So self-care, we'll talk about later on, really came out as one of the things that we need to be better at in Scotland and supporting human rights defenders. But that toll on people's physical and mental health on their families, on their relationships, and the inability sometimes to separate your work um, from activism, from your life, from being able to switch off from your family or social um, relationships or social connections can be like a double whammy because you're living this life for other people and with other people, but you're not obviously sometimes taking care of yourselves well enough and I think I think that came across um really really strongly in quite a lot of the interviews that I carried out and I think one of the things to remember amidst that is that when people are putting so much of themselves into something to then be on the receiving end of threats and harassment is even harder to deal with because it's a threat against you and it's it's a you know critique of you, not just your work. You kind of feel like it's all wrapped up in one. And Claire, I know from talking to you throughout this project, one of the things that really shocked you the most was the sheer level and intensity of the threats that people faced. I didn't expect that. I really didn't expect to be here in, in Scotland that people had threats against their life. That that shocked me actually to the core. And and having then spoken to Naomi um, from Amnesty and to Andrew from Frontline Defenders, they weren't shocked by that. And I think I had a bit of naivety that actually Scotland was a bit more of a progressive country than actually it is. And um heard con consistently people talking about racism and talking about... Um, being exposed to vitriolic um, trolling on the internet and, and some of that was I knew was happening but I didn't expect people to be talking about um, a threat to life or violence against them. One of the clips that I'll play for you just now just left me absolutely like both speechless but also quite heartbroken. I have made my peace with it. Like that's a possibility. I had that conversation with my husband that that could happen to me, that I could be physically harmed, I could be murdered. I was so taken aback when I heard that, that somebody has just come to peace with the fact that they, they could be murdered and they truly feel like that could happen in Scotland in 2022 for standing up for human rights. And part of that, I think, um, people talked about the rise of the right-wing ideology. And that rise of the right-wing ideology opens that space for then those vitriolic attacks and those threats because it legitimises um, the, the ability to threaten people who are marginalised. And that came across um, from several people that um, I interviewed, that that right-wing space actually is a threat to people both um, in a theoretical way but actually as you heard from from that um, that person actually in their in their life and I think another person said they felt like it was almost government supported hate crime like it wasn't not not just not dealt with by the government but it was you know with I speak of the UK government the, with that right-wing element there that it actually was almost encouraged some of the hate speech that was um, thrown at these defenders. For sure, that was um, fueling hate speech. It was fueling attacks um, on on people. It was fueling um, certainly attacks on trans people. It was fueling people um, attacks on migrants, on refugees, um, and on asylum seekers. And that also was a thread which came through. Um, in the in the conversations that I had, 
There was one other person that we've got a short clip from who had come out of a of a media event and um, been met with a response from people that were worried that he now you know would face a risk to his life. From all over the country, saying that I'd you know positioned myself in a bad way and that I was in danger or I could potentially be in danger and you know talking risk to life, and I had to deal with that all myself. You know, this person says there they had to deal with it all by themselves. It, it was such an isolating experience and often there's not a massive support network for these people who are dealing with these really horrific threats and attacks. Yeah, and we'll talk about that a bit, little bit later on about actually what would help in these circumstances when you feel so alone, when you feel so backed up, when you feel so threatened, um, how can we support people who are in that situation. We know that this might happen. It's better that we have a culture where this doesn't happen, but um, we also need to recognise that there needs to be practical support to to help people who are in those situations. And I think uh, there was also, within a lot of your interviews, this idea that it's not always just personal attacks and personal threats. It's a wider risk to speaking up, that it's not just people, but organisations too. This idea that you could have your funding cut if you don't toe the line. Yeah, that certainly emerged as a threat, um, sometimes not as an explicit threat of the people I spoke to, but some had um, experiences of there being limits to them speaking truth to power. And there seemed to be an issue with people doing human rights work where they were in paid employment and particularly where their organisation was funded by the state to deliver services. Um, there were complexities then around the third sector being a duty bearer in its own right in, in, in that uh, in that sense. Um, but certainly um, some threats around towing the line, um, not speaking out against almost, you know, the, the organisation that, that funds you. And, and that for me was... Um, a recurring theme, which I think we probably need to look at at a more strategic level in Scotland around procurement, how that happens, how um, organisations are able to be able to be free and speak truth to power when that truth needs to be spoken. So uh, there's something around the culture that we need to we need to change around um, flourishing um, open speech for people. And mm. um, there was one person uh, that you spoke to who actually said they, they didn't feel like they'd experienced the same level of threats. And uh, we can hear from them just now. I've never had any issue with like authority and stuff. It's more like every time I've went to anything, people have been friendly. But I know that's not everybody's experiences. And, you know, especially because I'm a white female. And I think, you know, they've said it themselves, they've identified their own area of, of privilege, but it just kind of highlights the diversity of the experiences of the people that you spoke to. You have such a wide range of experiences there. Certainly, and some people said that they were able to speak truth to power as well, that um, they hadn't found it as a, as a difficulty. And I know um, there, there is hope out there, and we'll talk a little bit later about some of the hope that, that is emerging. Um, but the overriding conversations were around, around the threats of losing funding or um, physical threats or... Um, toxic social media threats that that was an emerging kind of inconsistent theme throughout mm -hmm. and just to, to move forward a little bit one of the the well the key question you pose with this entire podcast series and this entire um, wealth of research that you've done is what do human rights defenders need in order to to flourish and one very common answer that that i heard was simply to be believed to be supported and to be championed. But that idea that just the simple thing of believing somebody when they express their own lived experience to you. Absolutely. Um, because the people that I spoke to were experts in their field, experts in experiencing systems or challenging systems or challenging structures which um, oppress and marginalise groups. So if only we could listen to them and actually build the responses to, to systems based on their experiences. That would be an incredible place to be. Um, I don't think we're quite there yet, 
But imagine if we were actually believing people and them being involved then in designing the systems that 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 need to change. And we speak of the the buzzwords of you know including people with lived experience and participation and engagement, and it feels now that more and more organisations are are saying that that's what they're doing. And does that give you hope that that's becoming less of a tick box exercise and more of something that is happening in practice? Um, it gives me hope, but there were also um, comments from the conversations around it being a tick box exercise. Mm -hmm. And that actually suddenly people with lived experience are the buzzwords and they're brought in to talk around their experience, but they're not actually um, there to be valued um, and to be able to shift the systems and to hold people to account. So there's still issues around power. There are still issues around intersectionality and the approach that we take. There are still issues that some um, communities are much more marginalised than others. Racism is still rife in Scotland. We, you know, I, I've heard that um, from several of the interviews. Um, I've heard that there there are difficulties for people um, who are disabled in accessing um, systems that that could help to change. Um, and I know, you know, we can explore a bit of that um, certainly, but we need there to be much more of a, a wide involvement of people. Um, in Scotland. And access to campaigning and access to attending these kind of events was another thing that was um, mentioned by one of the people that you interviewed in terms of the class divide in human rights defenders and uh, we can hear from them now. Accessibility and affordability is another one because I think that I really struggle with in Amnesty is it's like completely middle class like there's hardly anyone from a working class background that's there. Um, and it's fine to say, like, I'll oh, come to this thing, but some people don't have four pounds to go and pay for a bus, never mind pay for a trip to go down south or whatever. I think, like, being like accessible and financially accessible is, like, two completely different things. And I know that you know, most human rights organisations are very aware of this and they, they do all that they can to widen access to their networks and to their services. But when you look at Scotland, you know, we have such different demographics and there were some people I think you spoke to who spoke about how much harder it was to be in a rural community and to access, you know, either support or events or campaigns. Yes, yeah, certainly. And um, particular instances where people living in a rural community um, found it more difficult to speak out as well because you're well known. If you become well known as a troublemaker, that was a theme throughout. Um, if you become known as a troublemaker, you then get isolated or silenced or you don't get work or you don't um, get the opportunity to participate in government working groups because you're seen um, as a troublemaker. And for people living in rural communities, um, that was even compounded even more. So that separation between work life and, and home life um, and activism seemed to kind of merge all together and people know who you are. They knew who you were in terms of the, the, the issues that you're working on. Um, and that presented challenges for people in, in rural Scotland. Um, and I also heard some comments about people who were from black and minority ethnic communities in rural Scotland. How, how were they able to challenge issues? That seemed quite a different space to be in rather than if you're um, from the same community but in the central belt where there seemed to be um, more people active around that space. There was also um, one of the people you spoke to highlighted the importance of supporting young people to become involved in, in being human rights defenders. I think like just even starting from the bottom is like an achievement in its own because actually trying to get involved I think in organisations can be really really scary and especially being quite young and a lot of the time organisations might think that they're accessible for young people but that it's not because the board's like all white men are in like mainly older like people as well so it's really hard to feel like you fit into a space where it's really crowded with people that aren't you and you don't have any like role models in that aspect. And I think that really highlights the the need, what do we need, of diversity in organisations, diversity on boards, you know, representation for broad demographics within um, organisations. Yeah, I mean, I could see that that was a particular issue for children and young people, actually. Um, the adults didn't actually trust that they had enough to say about the big issues. And that's just a fallacy. 
you know, I've, I've having spoken to children's human rights defenders and young people who were um, human rights defenders, um, they were well able to articulate the challenges and the changes that need to happen um, in Scotland. So broadening that diversity and all of us actually looking at our own power and our own positionality and the work that we do, I think is really important um, and challenging ourselves to make sure that um, there's a space um, for people to engage. Who, who are the people for, that are furthest from the table? And we have to ask, why are they not engaged? They're quite often easy to ignore rather than hard to reach. Mm. Uh, quite a few people spoke about the support that's needed, just this kind of really basic level of support. And there was a couple of people who spoke about how peer support is great, but you don't always want to be leaning on people who are going through the same experience, who have their own issues to deal with. And then there were quite a number of people for whom they felt self-doubt crept in quite regularly when doing this work. You know, that feeling of, oh, who am I to be saying this and speaking on those people's behalf? And uh, one person spoke of the, the imposter syndrome that came from doing this kind of work. A lot of it is we are our own worst enemy in a sense where we shoot ourselves down and say we're not gonna people's not gonna want to hear this they're not gonna want to hear me on, on this because you know for me it's like an imposter syndrome I wasn't born in Scotland so how how can I possibly talk about Scottish issues if I wasn't born here and I think that also comes a lot from when I was raised in the U.S. like how can I talk about being American if I wasn't actually born here but now again i fight that voice in my head saying i've, I've lived in scotland now for 14 15 years plus so I've, I've almost lived half my life i would say um in in scotland now that i i can get i understand the way of life i will never be able to speak for all different demographics but for the ones that come through um i, I can certainly understand the some of the things they've, they've gone through and in trying to assimilate into the culture as well um, I think the challenges as well when you look at it is is then putting yourself forward in general um, and, and hoping that someone will actually listen. Because um, like I said, you fight through the imposter syndrome and say no one's going to want to listen. I think it's it's quite a challenge to fight through imposter syndrome at times. You know, it really is. Um, and I think it's it's wrapped up in that idea of believing in people as well. Like we said, I said a minute ago, just basically believing people's experiences and kind of shaking off that idea of, well, who am I to speak on behalf of somebody who's had a slightly different experience to me? Um, is that something that you think is a is a challenge regularly? And how is that something that we need to be addressing? I think so, um, because it takes courage to self-reflect on on your on your own activism, and it takes courage to really look at yourself and think about. What can I achieve here? Imagine if I got rid of the shackles of an imposter syndrome, what I could actually achieve. What I heard um, was incredible people who were fantastic at the work they were doing against all odds, and we've already spoken about, um, really standing up for change and fighting that self-doubt within themselves at the same time as firefighting those other challenges which were coming from them actually raising the issues. So I think what I would take from speaking to all of all of those human rights defenders is the courage that they have um, is, is incredible. You know, the courage to, to speak out and to look at yourself and and, and really go where you fear to tread most um, mm. often. It's when you take that leap into the unknown, you take that leap into fear where you have to stand up because if you don't stand up, who else will? I heard that quite often as well, that people were driven by that need for change, by that need to challenge injustice. And that became overriding to the imposter syndrome. It's not to say that it wasn't there, but that need to shift um and to dismantle some of the structures of power which are holding us back um was more prevalent on the what we need uh, to help human rights defenders flourish you spoke a minute ago when we were talking about the threats that people faced about racism um it, it's something that sadly is still incredibly prevalent in scottish society although some people often try to suggest that Scottish Scotland isn't actually that bad you know it's not that bad and one of the people you spoke to um I 
thought what she said about this was wrong and really highlighted that Scottish exceptionalism that we like to think that we're not really that racist, but actually people are experiencing racism on a daily basis and we need to be able to say that. I don't normally tweet about or not actively tweet about race-related issues um, for, for a whole host of reasons, but that was just a personal comment that I made about my perception that, that Scotland is, is just as racist as anywhere else. It's just that we're very good at hiding it. And, oh, my goodness, you know, it just felt like um, people of of all persuasion were, were on that thread um, saying all sorts of things. So t- to me, my, my kind of personal opinion thrown in here, Claire, is that we need to actually just accept that we have a racism problem in this country still. I think you're right, because if we don't recognise that, we can't change it. Um, That came up several times about that we're much more progressive in Scotland um, than the rest of the UK. But I'm not sure that I fully agree with that. Um, There's we need to have that recognition that actually things are not okay, Um, And until we're able to to challenge that, I think we're in a sticky wicket. I think we need to take an intersectional approach to challenging um, power um, and accepting that racism is here and we need to stop it and we need to challenge it on every front, all of us. Mm. There were a couple of people that you spoke to that um, talked about something else that we need in order to allow human rights defenders to flourish and that is strong laws. Um, it's a fairly fundamental part of, of what we need. And one of the people you spoke to said that we shouldn't even need human rights defenders. And I found this uh, particularly interesting to hear. So when it, the way I look at it is that there shouldn't be a need for human rights defenders because if public bodies, including governments, unions, professional bodies, uh, regulatory bodies and that, understood and knew what the laws were and were compliant with them, we wouldn't need to, you know, you wouldn't need to be doing this research. And when you're talking about things, for example, about institutional racism, you think, you know, that's 2000, Stephen Lawrence in the 90s, we're still tarnished with this institutional racism label, which I believe is very real. And I, I think there's no shortage of evidence to support that. We wouldn't need, as I say, defenders. We need education and training. So there's quite a lot to unpack in that clip. Um, the first thing, you know, obviously, in an ideal world, we wouldn't need human rights defenders. We'd have strong laws. But things like institutional racism that he then went on to speak about, you know, will our laws ever be strong enough to ever counter that? That's something that we have to counter on a social basis in society and communities. Well, I think we'll have an opportunity with the new laws that are coming in Scotland um, around human rights to embed um, those protections and social protections in an overarching law Um and I think that's the opportunity that we need to to be able to embed responses um, to things like institutional racism, so that that discrimination is um, isn't experienced by people going forward. Where where we're at though is that there are public bodies which are still institutionally racist. Mm. Um, they would defend themselves probably and say that they're not, but from the experiences that I've heard. Um, during this podcast series um that's not the experience on the ground there was something else that he said there around if these duty bearers public authorities government if they knew the laws like we need to educate so you know is it enough to simply bring further rights into to scottish laws do we need wider work on ensuring that all of the duty bearers are actually fully aware of the responsibilities there's a massive capacity building issue for public authorities around their duties um, as duty bearers for human rights. And and that needs to come. That needs to be resourced. It needs to be um, funded in Scotland because otherwise there will continue to be this gap between rhetoric of what sounds fantastic policy and change 
and actually the delivery of and the experiencing of human rights at the grassroots in everyday human rights issues. You know, so that gap has to be bridged and it has to be bridged by all of us putting our shoulders to the wheel to understand what the obligations are in relation to human rights and for rights holders to be able to claim those rights mm -hmm. in a proactive way, in a way that they can hold public authorities to account. So there's masses of work that we still need to do. Um, I'm still hopeful around it, but um, masses of work and we all need to be um, in that journey together. And there was one other person you spoke to that raised the issue of uh, what they said was the lawless public authorities, but the idea of how do we make public authorities accountable? We were finding that, uh, you know, local authorities basically are virtually lawless in a way. They can do everything so open to interpretation that they can virtually do what they like. So how... how and I mean, just a question at how do you assess the, the human rights, the application of human rights when you've got legislation that's as open as that? And that's something that hopefully the new legislation that we can expect soon in Scotland should address. Well, I would hope so. Yeah, absolutely. There's... There's no time like now in Scotland. We're really at an opportune moment. Um, and, and I would really love to see um, things like rights of appeal and access to justice and people being able to hold public authorities to account in a much more um, easy way. You know, we shouldn't have all those barriers that people need to be able to access justice um, that I heard. Um, so there's real, real opportunities here. Mm -hmm. There were quite a lot of other things that people said they thought that human rights defenders needed. Um, one big thing was training uh, specifically around kind of how to keep yourself safe on social media, which can be an absolute minefield these days. Absolutely. There is some training out there and supporting people with social media, but it's not all that we need. Yeah, and I think you've heard me have a, a little rant about this myself in the past. Um, I have attended training on how to keep yourself safe on social media, but it was billed as how to, you know, combat social media abuse. And I just felt like every single thing I was being told to do was about how I can change what I'm doing. So I should make my accounts private. I should make sure I don't post anything that could identify where I am. You know, I have to do all of the work. And it's it's victim blaming. It's making the victim change how they are. And I feel that that isn't an appropriate way to deal with this. No, it's not. We need to structure change and we need to hold those social media companies to account as well. You know, in terms of business and human rights, they also are... Um, duty bearers in relation to guaranteeing our human rights. So we need to be able to challenge those systems effectively. Um, in the third podcast, certainly, I talk with Andrew Anderson from Frontline Defenders about what they do effectively to support um, human rights defenders with um, issues in relation to social media and keeping themselves safe online. But it's, it's something that needs to change systematically that we need to be um, holding those social media companies to account. And that's certainly not to belittle a lot of the practical tools that people can be given, the practical support that you can be given to, to understand what you're putting on social media and who it can be seen by, if that is still important. Um, so what other areas did people say they felt like they needed support in? Um, um, one that came, thing that came across was about needing advocacy. There's a really interesting clip where this was discussed about how things are improving um, and, and that was something that was, was really helpful to hear. Yeah, I really like this clip. Public bodies just didn't get it. You were, you were an interfering busybody, you know. It's, um, it's nothing to do with you. They didn't understand advocacy and being able there to support somebody to actually realise their rights, which is what it was all about, really. Um, and it took a long time for that to, go, to, to get through to them to see that actually it's... I'm there to help this person communicate with you and you to communicate with them. Uh, I'm not here to interfere. I do not make decisions for them. Uh, I give them choices so they can make their own informed decisions. Mm -hmm. So gradually, it's definitely improved an awful lot. But in the early days, it was quite difficult. 
So it's, it's nice to hear that things are improving, you know, that work is being effective. Um, in that case, it was maybe just a, a constant badgering, a constantly trying that, that worked. But from all of your discussions, what was highlighted as being the things that really worked, that really did help human rights defenders flourish? Um, there was training, particularly on how to deal with social media, trolling, um, practical information about how to keep your your account safe. Um, one of the key things that came across was independent funding for human rights work. Um, there needs to be a bit of a reality check there that activists are often out of pocket for the for the work that they're doing, and even if they're not out of pocket um, for that work if they're being funded by an organisation funded by the state, that, that became an issue. So a real discussion around um, independent funding for that work and money available that's freely available to do that. And the importance with that to me is that if we don't have money available for, for activism, then the only activists we're hearing from are the ones with money. Correct. Yeah. And we can't continue to, to, to do that, you know, and we can't continue where there's um, a, a disproportionate power as well on the right wing, mm-hmm. dominating narratives and dominating space because they're able to 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 buy adverts, for example. Or, um, you know, we, we've seen that quite often um, and, and, that, and that's not helpful, mm-hmm. you know, so broadening knowledge and confidence and programmes that can support that, how to sustain campaigns or lots of practical ideas around that, but also that new culture that we need, um, a culture where people can be believed and new laws to back up human rights defenders and their work, I think, were, were some of the, the key issues that came across. Um, one of the other things that uh, I took as being something that um, really worked was that ensuring that there was diversity in engagement and participation um, across all demographics uh, and you could say taking a, a human rights based approach, you know, and there was um, one of the people you spoke to give a great example of this during the period poverty campaign. Because that, that sometimes I found that when you're campaigning, some, sometimes the circles are a bit closed off and they don't want to hear the, the opinions of, of others. Um, but in the period poverty campaign, I felt that it was, it was actually the opposite. Um, Monica had invited a lot of people into that conversation, both young people, uh, people from kind of deprived backgrounds, but also uh, people from like ethnic minority backgrounds as well, uh, because period poverty was just for them sometimes the just the tip of the iceberg, there were other things like that they wanted to have discussions on like, you know, FGM, um, anything like that. And people were just not comfortable having those conversations, but now because they found the circle to, to, to have those conversations in, for me, that was a, that was a high. And she's referencing Monica Lennon, MSP there, who took on the period poverty campaign. And it was an incredibly successful campaign and it gained cross-party support. And to me, it, possibly because it just was a campaign that wasn't led by one specific group. It was a really wide and diverse campaign. Certainly. I mean, when you're using a rights-based approach, well, it's about participation of the people who are furthest from the table, the people who don't often get their voice heard. Um, and, and that, for me, was a real strength in speaking to that human rights defender. And they were well able to demonstrate how they'd, how they'd got people from different sections um, of the community involved and engaged um, in, a, in a sustained campaign. And it was a beautiful thing to hear, actually. So I'd love to see um, much more of an emphasis on um, using a rights-based approach in practice um, across our communities in Scotland. Mm-hmm. Were there any examples of what works in terms of supporting people who have maybe been um, subjected to those threats? Um, yes, informal support networks really helped. Um, having your tribe around you, people coming forward and, and offering support and help and listening, being with you on the journey, walking alongside you, when you were facing difficulties, that came across um, really strongly. Um, and structures to be able to support and, and learn from each other where people felt that they weren't alone. I think that was one of the strongest things that came across, that sense that we need solidarity in the work that we're doing 
um, to share that load and to share those frustrations and and to vent and to rant like like you said earlier. You know, sometimes we just need people on that journey with us. Um, so there were there was a lot of talk of how we could bring people together in a bit more of a structured way, but not in a way which feels forced, but in a way where people can actually respond to. Um, the demands or, or the difficulties at a time when it's needed. So there was some stuff around crisis support as well, support with mental health, support around trauma and using a trauma-informed approach to the work that we're doing to not re-traumatise people by lived, ex you know, valuing their lived experience, but then re-traumatising mm -hmm. and asking people to talk about their issues in a way which... Um, cause them damage so those were some of the ideas as well as creating safe spaces um for groups who were marginalized and particularly um where those safe spaces existed then there was more of an opportunity for human rights defenders to flourish Mm -hmm. And you're going to be exploring um, what works and what's needed in, in the other uh, podcasts in this series as well. Um, but I just want to, to move on to just we don't have a huge amount of time left. Um, for you, and I know this is a question you asked everybody that you interviewed, what brings you hope? Oh, the human rights defenders that I spoke to bring me hope because they are changing systems every day. They're transforming um, people's lives every day. Um, they don't see that they're doing it quite often and they would maybe be hesitant to say that they're having a massive impact. But for me, they are. And that just has to give me hope because that solidarity and that collective movement, which continues to grow in Scotland, is challenging inequality. And the more that people stand up for human rights in Scotland, the more that we can create a system with, and a country which is more just um, which is more egalitarian um, and which really empowers people who are most marginalised by structural inequality. Mm -hmm. And I have one final clip to play you, um, which is all about how that sense of community can bring hope. I think just genuinely like being a part of like a group where you feel like change is happening, it can be something so small from like being you've changed one of your friend's views or someone in your family's to then like going on big marches changing legislation like for example the uncrc like incorporating that into scottish law was massive and it was such a like a, a massive step um, for a country to like actually incorporate that into their law because it means that the government can then be held accountable as well as like people and local authorities so stuff like that and uh, I, I love that clip. I think it's great. I think that what we saw amidst the um, incorporation of the CRC was this wonderfully hopeful and joyful display of community. Absolutely. You know, being involved from the fringes of that myself um, as a trustee with the Children's Parliament, it was just incredible to see that movement of people calling for change. Mm -hmm. um, Cross-party support for children's rights into Scots law was quite you know a groundbreaking moment for Scotland and it didn't happen out of generosity of the the spirit in the parliament it happened because of long hard campaigning over 20 years um, of people wanting that change to happen and it's for me it's incredible that the first um, human rights treaty that we're incorporating in Scotland is around children's rights and that's as it should be but the new rights that are coming for for the rest the rest of the marginalised groups in Scotland, I think, is um, is going to be a really powerful moment too. And good reason to be hopeful. Absolutely, um, I think you you have to keep keep that hope because otherwise it gets it gets really difficult when you're facing problems um, in access and rights. And I think it, we have to keep that hope. Well, Claire, thank you so much for letting me intrude on this first podcast in your series. It's been a delight to talk to you as always. Thank you for turning it on its head. That was somewhat unexpected, but um, um, uh, great to have you on board for this as well. And I think listeners can already go and listen to episodes two and three right now. They should all be available on uh, the Fearless Podcast Network. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.